The valley of the River Onk cuts like a deep scar across the Somme battlefields of 1916. Attack after attack made this a deadly corner of Picardy, but its quiet lanes today make it a place for reflection, the perfect place to walk the Somme. It seems that whenever we reach some sort of milestone with the podcast, we find ourselves back on the Somme, and that's no different for this episode, which marks the 60th Old Frontline podcast. We're coming close to to nearly a quarter of a million downloads, and I just want to thank you all again for your support by listening, by downloading, and also for those of you who support the production of the podcast via Buy Me A Coffee or on Patreon. That is very much appreciated. As I've said many times, the podcast will always be free. That was something that was very important to me from the very beginning. But your help and support and your contributions towards production means that going forward we can continue to do this and find new ways of bringing material to a bigger audience, which is partly what the podcast is all about. It's been an interesting week for those with a fascination for the Great War. The obituary of the author Lynn MacDonald appeared in The Guardian this week, written by military historian James Holland. And it was good to see James pay tribute to the work of Lynn. Her books in the 1970s and 80s inspired, I'm sure, many of us to find out more about the Great War and travel to those battlefields along the Western Front. I remember after my first visit to Ypres in 1982 going to Foils in London when it was just this huge anarchic array of books scattered on different floors and the military books tucked away in one far corner and finding a a first edition of Lynn MacDonald's book which was still in print then of course about Passchendaele and reading that and absolutely devouring it and when a Somme book came out in 1983 exactly the same I took it to the Somme with me that summer and walked up and down the battlefields with that in my knapsack sitting there and reading extracts from it. It's more than 20 years since Lynn MacDonald's final book was published to the last man about the spring offences of 1918. An excellent book, another excellent book by by Lynn but her legacy lives on and One of the things that she did with all the material that she'd gathered, the interviews with veterans and and all the objects and photographs and diaries that she was given by people as part of the research for her books, she donated to the archives of the Imperial War Museum. And I suppose as all of us who've been studying this for so many years get older, we do think about the legacy. Uh, The podcast is, I suppose, part of my own personal legacy of it by passing on some of these stories that I've gathered by tramping the battlefields over so many years but it does make you think about the longevity of it and ensuring that future generations can continue to study and and indeed understand and be inspired by the great war and, and the men and the women who took part on it and certainly Lynn's work highlighting the lives of ordinary people in those extraordinary circumstances are all part of the continuation of that legacy of the great war and that greater understanding. Also in the news this week was the story of the non-commemoration of certain Commonwealth troops, then Empire troops, with the announcement of an apology from the Commonwealth War Graves Commission, who planned to set right the wrongs that were done when the institution was the Imperial War Graves Commission in the period just after the First World War, to make sure that those soldiers who were not commemorated anywhere would be given the same commemoration in line with the concept of uniformity in death, which was one of the founding principles of the Commission when it was formed in 1917. I know from reading social media, a lot of people, I think, have been slightly confused by this because they've cited the existence of the Indian Corps Memorial at New Chapelle or Indian names on the Menin Gates or the graves of men from the Chinese Labour Corps or the Egyptian Labour Corps. There are many examples of that along the Western Front battlefields from Flanders down to the Somme and indeed beyond. But this is not what this story is about. It's about the war in Africa. Some of the very first shots of the Great War took place in Africa 
And these were men who had served as conscripted labour or enlisted labour or fighting alongside British regiments that were there who had not, for various reasons, been properly commemorated. Now, in a previous podcast episode where we looked at the story of the Indian Army at Neuve Chapelle and also the story of black British soldiers in the British Army in the Great War, we know from the many stories of those men that racism was commonplace more than a century ago. Institutional racism in in the case of the armed forces at that time, when we look, for example, at pensions paid to men of the British West Indies Regiment, who were given far less than a white soldier would have been given if they'd lost their leg on the Somme. And we need to recognise that those attitudes existed at that time. But, of course, we can't change the past. What we can change is the future. And I'd like to think that this move now by the Commonwealth War Graves Commission is part of that, making a wrong deed right and ensuring that these men who died in the African campaigns are properly commemorated or where war grave sites exist, they are marked and maintained. And I've read a number of different things and heard a number of different things on the radio this past week. They're talking about perhaps opening a museum to the men of these forces And projects like that to highlight just how multinational, multi-ethnic this war was more than 100 years ago are really important because the war was a global war. It was a world war and we need and should understand that. And I look forward to seeing what the Commonwealth War Games Commission do to take this whole idea, this whole project forward over the course of the next few years. But now it's time to strap on our virtual boots, sling on our virtual rucksack and head out onto the lanes of Picardy once more as we head off to walk the Somme. We're starting our walk in the little village, the hamlet almost, it does have a church so it's probably not really a hamlet, but the tiny village of Saint-Pierre-Divion. Now a lot of the Villages on the Somme post-war became much smaller than they'd been before the Great War. But Saint-Pierre-Divion has always been quite a small village. It nestles in the Ancre Valley, the river valley that runs through this part of the Somme battlefields. And we're in the main street of Saint-Pierre-Divion now, close to a building that was once the main cafe here. You can see just by looking at it that it is an old cafe. It's got little steps going up into it. And whenever I look at these old cafe buildings, I often wonder in the 1920s and 30s when the veterans came back to places like this to see where they had fought as young men, what discussions must have taken place there over a beer or coffee. You know, we can only but speculate. The village of Saint-Pierre-Divion was one of those captured by the Germans in 1914 as the French and the German armies met in this part of the region of the Somme. It then remained behind their line. So where we're standing now in the middle of the village, really, with the church behind us, we're looking straight down the main street and ahead of us on the other side of the village where the wooded area is, close to a very steep escarpment, just beyond that was the front line trenches. So we're just behind the German lines. And this would remain in German hands for most of the Battle of the Somme, this area not truly being cleared until the end of the battle in November of 1916. In those nearly two years leading up to the Battle of the Somme, the Germans were in occupation of Saint-Pierre-de-Vion. These were men from the 26th Reserve Division, which was a, a Württemberg division. It was essentially a sort of a Württemberg POWs unit, not that that concept really existed within the German army, but these were localised units from the towns and the cities and the villages within the old region of Württemberg. For most of their occupation of this ground around this village, it had been a quiet time. There had been no major offensive battles here by the French. There had been a little bit of fighting in some of the areas, particularly to the north around Serre and Hebuterne, but not here. It had been really a quiet sector. And when the French gave way to the British and, and British units began to occupy this sector of the Somme battlefields, it remained quiet up until the beginning of the Somme offensive in 1916. So it gave the, the Württemberg troops that were here time to really build on their defences. 
and this being that rolling chalk downland that we often talk about here on the podcast they were able to dig deep into that with deep dugouts deep trench systems and tunnels in this area in particular around saint pierre de ville linking up different parts of the battlefield from the front line to reserve positions and headquarters and so on because it was a quiet sector there wasn't a lot of damage to the buildings within saint pierre de ville and also sitting in the hollow of a, of a valley it was slightly protected when we look at the photographs of this area in a publication called Ander Somme which was a, a photo book published for German soldiers as a sort of a, a souvenir booklet that they could take home showing the towns and villages where they'd served and, and various battlefield shots. So it's a contemporary publication from 1916 to 18. There's a couple of different versions of it. When we look at those photographs taken in the lead-up to the Battle of the Somme, we see that the buildings are in pretty good condition. So probably for the German troops who were here in that period from when they first arrived in the autumn of 1914 up until that early summer of 1916, it probably felt like a bit of a a cushy sector really because, yeah, sure, they, they had to raid the enemy positions. When the British took over, there was quite a few trench raids on this sector of the Somme so the Germans could establish what sort of units that the British Army were putting in and and vice versa of course as well the British raided the German positions in this area when they took over in 1915 and early 1916 so there was that and the day-to-day activities of trench warfare artillery bombardments rifle grenades trench mortars the occasional gas release whether from shells or from static gas canisters and all the other paraphernalia of the day-to-day activities of trench warfare. So as much as any part of the Western Front was ever truly quiet, this little corner of the Somme at Saint-Pierre-de-Vion could certainly be called that. Of course, all of that would change with the beginning of the Battle of the Somme. On the 1st of July 1916, this was in the sector attacked by the 36th Ulster Division. Their left-hand brigade attacked in this area with the River Onk and the railway line and the village of Hamel close by, uh, resting on the edge of their assault. That attack, although they got into the Schwaben Redoubt and got a foothold eventually in the German positions in front of Thietval Wood, it cost the division over 5,000 casualties that day and Saint-Pierre-Divion remained in German hands. There were successive attacks here again and key dates that we'll come across in this walk quite a lot so are obviously the first day of the Somme but also the 3rd of September 1916 when British troops attacked again in this area in the Ancre Valley, trying to take these positions, like the ground beyond Hamel and here at Saint-Pierre-Divion. Those attacks, as we'll discover, were not entirely successful. So the final battle, and that final key date, is the 13th of November 1916, the Battle of the Ancre, when this ground was attacked and finally captured in the assaults of that final operation here on the Somme, and it became an area where tanks were used. Now, one of the things that you see when you stand in this part of the village, on the right-hand side, not quite opposite the old cafe, there's uh, a post, a metal post, and there's a German Stahlhelm, a steel helmet there, with an 18-pounder shrapnel shell underneath it. It's it's a sort of a bit of trench, modern trench art. Um, Quite an interesting little thing to point out to people when you come here, because you can explain the construction of the German Stahlhelm. And when they were introduced on the first day of the Somme, I would say that although the helmet had come into use with the assaults at Verdun back in February of 1916, probably very few, if any, German units had any sizable number of steel helmets on the Somme battlefields at that time. When you read accounts of some of the German soldiers were here, and, and in English there are not that many, of course, but when we look at Ernst Junger in Storm of Steel, an account of the Great War that we've mentioned quite a few times on this podcast, he talks about the helmets in September of 1916 when he was at Gillymore being trench stores, so they were not actually owned by individual soldiers. They were part of a trench system's battlefield stores and were handed over to the unit that was coming in by the unit that was occupying the line. So it really wasn't until late 1916 on into early 1917 that every German soldier on the Western Front had one of these Stahlhelms. The German ability to produce this amount of material in what was proving to be a long war, and indeed that in itself was one of the reasons why perhaps Germany would eventually lose the war. They had an economy and a structure that was built up for a quick decisive victory and that hadn't happened and when the war went on for years and years and years 
their whole economic structure could just not cope with it. Anyway, we digress slightly and we'll no doubt return to those aspects of the Great War another day. So we'll begin our walk now. We'll walk out of the village of Saint-Pierre-de-Vion towards the D73, which is the modern road that runs from the village of Hamel through the Ancre Valley and up to Teepval Ward and beyond that the village of Teepval itself. As we walk out this way, we see how few houses there are here. And over to our right are the, the flooded marshes around the River Onk. We'll have a chat about the River Onk itself when we get onto the bridge that crosses it just shortly. But this area is a big area for fishing. A lot of locals have areas that they've purchased to do fishing. And you can see little platforms where people fish in and around these flooded lakes or the flooded marshes. And it's a very popular pastime here. But what it does do from a Great War perspective gives us a bit of an idea into the geology of the of the ground here when we can see how marshy and boggy and flooded it is today. But also as we walk out of this part of the village we, we see the big steep escarpments, the chalk escarpment on our left hand side and in the winter months you can see the indentations of dugouts and also some of the tunnel entrances there. There, there are tunnels that run from this escarpment up towards the German frontline positions opposite Thiepval Ward and also back probably towards the Schwaben Redoubt and the German second and third line positions just beyond that. And like I said, this was all part of the infrastructure that the Germans had put on this part of the battlefield in the lead up to the fighting here in 1916. Just up ahead, the road bends as it comes out of the wooded area and out into a bit of an open field on the left-hand side. And we've got good views looking up to the Ulster Tower Memorial, the memorial to the 36th Ulster Division sitting up on the high ground above us, and also the trees of Thiepval Wood. And as we reach the D73, the, the main road, we'll stop and look back. And we're looking at it now from the British perspective. The British front line was just behind us on the other side of the road, towards the, the trees of the wooded area on the southern parts of Thiepval Wood. And on the 13th of November 1916, at the end of the Battle of the Somme, then that final attack, this was the location where a tank went forward to assist the infantry units from the 39th Division who were making their assaults on the village of Saint-Pierre-Divion, battalions of the Sherwood Foresters and the Black Watch. Now that tank was Tank A13 or Tank Number 544, where all in it was the name painted on the side of the tank. That was commanded by Lieutenant H.W. Hitchcock, and it was one of three tanks that were supposed to take part in this attack, but two of them had ditched on the way up. So this was the only one that arrived, and its journey began on the far side of Thiepval Wood, where it had followed the valley there just below the Thiepval Ridge, come up onto the Thiepval Hamel Road, in parts must have been in full view of the German positions who probably were somewhat startled and alarmed to see this tank arrive it then drove down the road down towards the valley and then turned off to assist the infantry in their assaults on Saint-Pierre-Divion. It was a, a female tank so fitted with machine guns not a six pounder gun and its machine guns gave vital fire support to the infantry units as they cleared out this trench system here when the tank went forward to the next line of German defence, it got into trouble in the shell-smashed ground and quite a deep trench there, and it fell into part of the German positions. Now, the battle was quite fluid at this point, and the Germans counter-attacked, and at one point the tank was entirely surrounded. It was now stuck fast, so Lieutenant Hitchcock gave the order to debus to get out the tank and try and fight their way out or defend it from German attacks. He and another man, Gunner W.J. Miles, were both killed and some of the crew had been lightly wounded, but they took the machine guns out, set up a defensive perimeter around the tank and they held fast. One of them released a carrier pigeon and the message from that carrier pigeon is in the headquarters war diary of the 39th Division General Staff and it called for assistance. So another message was sent to the infantry that were on the ground and they moved up and cleared the Germans away from the area around the tank. So this story shows just how important carrier pigeons were on the battlefield. We can joke about them because of Blackadder. But in a modern battlefield devoid of modern communication techniques, pigeons, runners and the other methods that were employed were all incredibly important in keeping the army in touch with itself. And, and here, 
tipped the balance in the favour of the tank crew who had had to get out their tank and defend it. Lieutenant Hitchcock and Gunner Miles were both buried alongside the tank at the time and post-war their graves were moved to Mill Road Cemetery just on the other side of the ridge just beyond the Ulster Tower and they lie side by side in the cemetery. For the centenary of the end of the Battle of the Somme in 2016, I worked with my old friend John Hayes Fisher on a documentary about the final battle on the Somme, the Battle of the Onk, and we included the story of this tank in that film. And we brought one of the relatives of Gunnar Miles back here, Professor Peter Doyle, who we had on last week's podcast, was the contributor that brought that story alive for us and explained what had happened here in 1916. And from the, the Posiers Remembrance Association, we got a, a replica of a, of a Mark I tank which was brought over to the ground and set up just on the other side of the road from where we are on a little track that goes off to give a bit of an impression of what it was like. And, and that was a Channel 4 documentary which is occasionally still shown on More 4 and their other uh, catch-up networks. But in terms of the story of tanks on the Somme in 1916, the place where they were used for the very first time, this was the end of the Battle of the Somme, their, their final use before the winter of 1916-17 set in. And although several were detailed to be used on different parts of the line on the 13th of November 1916, this was probably the most important action that a tank took part in anywhere along the Somme front on that day. And I'll put some photographs of the tank. It was photographed quite extensively at the time, plus uh, a picture of uh, Lieutenant Hitchcock and the tank that we brought here in 2016. And I'll put those on the podcast website, oldfrontline.co.uk. Now we're now on the D73. We're going to effectively turn right, go towards Hamel, and we'll walk up to the bridge that crosses the River Onk at this point. And that'll be our next stop. Standing on the bridge over the River Onk here, we're standing on a river that really dominates this part of the Somme battlefields. We talk about the Battle of the Somme, and the Somme region, of course, is named after the River Somme, but it is the River Onk that runs through most of the area where the British were fighting in 1916. Onk means anchor in French. The river rises in the village of Miramont, further up the valley, and then comes down through Albert, beyond Albert itself, and enters the River Somme, close to the town of Corby. It gave its name to the Battles of the Onk in 1916, which were part of what would eventually be known as the overall Battle of the Somme itself. And although here it was part of the battlefield, down in Albert and beyond, in the villages behind the lines, it was a place that soldiers swam in when they were out of the trenches in that warm summer of 1916 when men were out of the line in villages beyond Albert like Dernancourt and Treux and, and small little villages which were used for billeting troops. The, the promise of a river to go bathing in was quite an enticing one and there are photographs of British soldiers swimming in the Onk that appear in the archives of the Imperial War Museum. So it's an important river, really, in our, our understanding of the wider landscape here on the Somme battlefields and, indeed, its history. Now, when we look at the trench maps of this area, we see that the front lines came down through this area. Now, a trench can't be dug through a river. And what happens under those circumstances is that the trench system will stop close by and then begin on the other side of the river itself. And that would have been replicated on both sides of no man's land. But the ground here was sodden. Uh, it was a river valley. It was a marshy area and very, very difficult to dig into. And when you look at some of the detailed sketch maps that appear in some of the unit war diaries of battalions that passed through this area, you see that in parts of it, it was more of an outpost line rather than a continuous trench because I suspect if they tried to dig a trench it would very very quickly fill up with water and I remember some time ago looking at a, a, an account by a soldier in the Durham Light Infantry who was here and he talked about there being sandbagged emplacements out in front of the main British line of defence which was the forward posts and they would go out at night and occupy these posts which were ram-packed with boxes of small arms ammunition and grenades 
and then they would stay there during the daylight hours, sometimes for a couple of days at a time, and keeping an eye on old Jerry across no man's land, the Germans, in case they came over. And he was rather worried about being in these these outposts because being packed full of ammunition and bombs, if they took a hit, the whole thing would go up like a firecracker and nobody would survive. And it appears that the Germans had a similar sort of arrangement on, on their side of the battlefield as well. So, you know, when we talk about the line of the Western Front, those 450 miles going from the Belgian coast down to the Swiss border... As we've said several times, it wasn't one continuous trench. It wasn't even a system of continuous trenches. It was ga- There were gaps. There were physical gaps where there were f- terrain features like this where trenches could not be dug through those locations. But that didn't mean that no one was there. Here, soldiers in these outpost positions and facing the Germans in theirs were still holding the line. So there was no way to exploit this no way to exploit a gap. You couldn't just simply go around it and avoid the Somme or avoid Passchendaele or whatever. It was a continuous system of defences, just not one continuous line. It is a river, the River Onk, but when we stand on this bridge and look down into it, it looks much more like a, a stream, really, at this particular point. It, get, it gets bigger as it goes on towards Albert, and if you go beyond Albert and see it there, it's quite an impressive river and you can see why men would would want to go swimming in it just ahead of us back towards saint pierre divion uh, there is the ruins of a of a mill here there was a, a water mill here before the war and edmund blunden the war poet who was here with the 11th battalion royal sussex regiment the first south downs describes this part of the battlefield in his excellent memoir of the first world war undertones of war and i'll, and I'll put a link to that book on the podcast website from the bridge we'll continue along the D73 to where it gets to the railway line. Now this is the, the modern line that runs from Amiens to Albert up to Arras and beyond that to, to Lille. It's a route that when I lived on the Somme I took on a regular basis to go off to join groups coming into the battlefields at different hotels in northern France and, uh, and in Belgium. And travelling along the railways as I did quite frequently in in those years that I lived here in France and indeed since was as I've said a few times on this podcast a very different way to view the battlefields and it is a journey that I would recommend to anybody to take at some point that journey from Amiens via Albert just up to Arras uh, is worth doing because you see cemeteries from the train you see the landscape and you view it from a slightly different sort of angle really but in 1916, of course, there, w- there were no trains running here. The British, in the early part of the war, had come through uh, Albert. There's some pictures of British soldiers on Albert Railway Station in 1914, parts of the, the BEF, the British Expeditionary Force, going off to fight up near Mons or Le Cateau or possibly heading down towards the Aisne. The French utilised the railway system, and then when we began to take over the Somme front in 1915 on into 1916, we used it too. We set up the whole infrastructure of casualty evacuation via railway line back towards Amiens and up towards the coast uh, to the base hospitals. Highly stationed cemetery on the Somme, for example, is close to the site of a casualty clearing station where men were brought to from the battlefield and then loaded up onto hospital trains and then taken off to further medical facilities further back. Very similar to Lissenhurk Cemetery that we spoke about in a previous podcast. But here on this spot, the railway line is effectively crossing no man's land. So, like I say, no trains running here in 1916, no Somme Express heading towards Berlin. But when the Battle of the Somme moved on and and when the battle concluded, the railway line was re-established. Now, not during that winter of 1916-17 because the front lines, uh, if we'd have been here then, were up just beyond Beaucourt, beyond Saint-Pierre-de-Vion to the next village, Beaucourt, and then above Beaucourt on the Ancre Heights around Wadda-Hollande, for example. But following the, the German withdrawal to the Hindenburg line in 1917, the Somme area became part of our rear echelon, the area behind our front line. And then the, the train system here was then re-established and reopened. Of course, in March 1918, the Germans broke through on the Somme front and the front lines returned to positions very close to where we're standing now. Uh, the Germans broke through, pushed us down the Ancre Valley a little bit further 
And as we cross over the railway line and look to our left towards Albert, we can see the trees of Avalui Wood in the far distance, which we've again mentioned in a previous podcast when we were in the village of Autui. But that's where the Germans pushed us back to in March, just above Albert. We stopped them on the outskirts of Albert on the 27th of March, and Avalui Wood became a hotly contested area with British troops, then men from the Royal Naval Division and then New Zealand Division troops. Um, so that was the front line then. So this, this ground changed hands, and of course then the railway line could not be used. But jumping back to 1916, what you see on both sides of, of No Man's Land here is the utilisation of the railway sleepers and also the railway line as part of the construction of positions in the trenches. If you've been to the Pope's Nose observation bunker close to the Ulster Tower, you may have seen sections of railway line coming up out of the concrete structure of the bunker, which were used to support possibly railway sleepers, or certainly timber, and those railway line sections are almost certainly from the original railway line down here in the valley. So Great War recycling, I suppose, in, in some ways. So we'll safely cross the railway line, we'll reach the next road, which is the D50, we'll turn right there and we'll walk a little bit further up, and on the left-hand side is a military cemetery, which is our next stop. We're standing outside the entrance to the Ankara British Cemetery now, and it's quite an unusual entrance, this cemetery. We're used to cemeteries being alongside a road or down a path, and we can see them quite clearly. This one is up above us, and to get to it we need to go up one of two flights of steps, left or right, of the main panel that names the cemetery, and then go up into the main area of the cemetery itself. And this front entrance with a big, mighty brick wall and Portland stone panels to it always reminds me of the sort of architecture that you would see in, in a naval shore establishment. And as we'll see, given the connection with the Royal Naval Division who fought here in November 1916, I've often wondered whether that was intentional. Although, talking recently to uh, Tim Godden, who we had on the podcast a few weeks ago, who is a specialist in the architecture and, and indeed the architects of the Commonwealth War Graves Commission, he's not come across that. But certainly every time I come here, it, it's something that I always think of and it makes interesting speculation. It could just be completely coincidental. But in my experience, very little is coincidental. Anyway, we'll go up into the cemetery itself. And as we mount those final few steps and come up onto the grass, we can see that this is quite a big cemetery. It's not very wide, but it's long. And we can see in the distance, at the far end of the cemetery, the cross of sacrifice is mounted up on a walled section. The graves go from left to right in big, long rows. And where we're standing, as we've just came in, this is part of the original cemetery. Plots one and five of this cemetery were started by the Fifth Corps burial parties. Now, what happened when the Germans withdrew to the Hindenburg Line in 1917? It gave the British Army an opportunity to come in and properly clear the Somme battlefields and bury the dead from 1916. So when these parties went out, not just here but all over, particularly this northern part of the battlefield where in many cases the front had remained static or it was impossible to clear the old no-man's land or the belts of German wire, they went out and they found thousands of bodies from Thiepval up towards Serre and buried them in battlefield cemeteries at that time. And when we think about this, we have to entertain that grim thought that these men had been lying out there in many cases since the 1st of July 1916, so were not properly buried until February or even March of 1917. When this original plot of graves was made, it was called Ankara River Cemetery Number 1, and I've got a, a contemporary photograph of what this looked like, which again I'll put on the podcast website. There were 517 graves here at that time, and most of them were men from the 36th Ulster Division that had attacked on this left flank of their assaults on the ground around Thiepval and Saint-Pierre-de-Vion on the first day of the Battle of the Somme, and men from the Royal Naval Division who'd fought here on the 13th of November, right at the end of the Battle of the Somme in 1916. Post-war, it was substantially enlarged and became a main concentration cemetery for this area 
of the battlefields. And those dates that we've spoken about, the 1st of July, the 3rd of September and the 13th of November, are very well represented amongst the burials in here. There are 2,446 British burials in this cemetery, 32 Newfoundlands. They were men who were killed in what is now the Newfoundland Park, whose bodies were buried on the battlefield and were then moved into here in the 1920s. Two New Zealanders and one South African. Of this, nearly 2,500 graves, over half of them are unidentified. There are unknown soldiers, men recovered after all that time on the battlefield and they could not ascertain who they were. They might have found a, a fragment of a shoulder title or a cap badge. And as you wander amongst the graves here, you do see an unknown soldier of the Border Regiment, an unknown soldier of the Anson Battalion, Royal Naval Division, and so on. But it could not be ascertained as to who these men were. And whoever they were, their names will be inscribed on the Thietvale Memorial to the Missing, which is on the high ground behind us from where we are in the cemetery and if you go to the far end of the cemetery particularly in the spring and the winter you can look back and see Thietval in the distance. The cemetery sits in a, a valley that was part of no man's land at the beginning of the Battle of the Somme so as we come up through the entrance and the cross of sacrifices ahead of us the British front lines were on the rising ground to our left and the German front lines were on the rising ground to our right. We're going to walk up through those German positions as part of this walk shortly but then in the months that followed the first day of the Battle of the Somme, attack after attack went across this ground and the whole battlefield here was littered with the dead of those failed assaults until the Royal Naval Division fought their first battle on the Western Front here on the 13th of November. Now the Royal Naval Division was a unique formation in the Great War, formed on an idea of Winston Churchill, who was Lord of the Admiralty in 1914. He had more sailors than ships to put them on, so he formed an infantry division from naval personnel, battalions of the Royal Naval Volunteer Reserve, named after famous admirals, Anson, Bembo, Collingwood, Hood, Nelson, so on, and units of the Royal Marines recruited in their depots like Portsmouth, Chatham and Deal. And they had fought at Antwerp in 1914 in Flanders, then at Gallipoli in 1915, where the casualties amongst units of the Royal Naval Division were, were so high that some of them had been disbanded. And when they came to the Western Front in 1916, they retained the title Royal Naval Division, but their numbers were made up by battalions of the British Army. Among them, units like the Artist Rifles, the Honourable Artillery Company, 7th Battalion Royal Fusiliers and indeed several others. But here on the 13th of November, on the ground where this cemetery now stands, the attack was led by the naval battalions of the Royal Naval Division, and they suffered quite substantial losses here, which we can see reflected in the burials, particularly in these plots where we first come in. But as you walk the entire length of the cemetery, you see a lot of the men and the different cap badges of the Navy and the Royal Marines and then the units, when you read the inscriptions, reflecting those naval battalions that fought here in November 1916. Like all of the silent cities of the Western Front, there are so many stories in a cemetery like this, particularly a big one like the Ankara British Cemetery. And I plan to come back here in those days when we can once more return to the old front line and possibly have a, an entire episode dedicated to this cemetery to wander around it and look at some of the things you can see as you traverse the different rows of the burials here but we'll focus in on one particular grave for this visit of an individual that's long fascinated me and that's Lieutenant Veer Sidney Tudor Harmsworth. Veer Harmsworth was killed here on the 13th of November 1916 aged 21. He was one of several sons of Lord Rothermere the owner of the Daily Mail. Lord Rothermere lost two sons in the war. Veer Harmsworth killed here in the attack on Beaucourt and his brother Vivian Harmsworth, who was an officer of the Irish Guards who was wounded at Combray in 1917 and died in a military hospital in Britain in 1918. He's buried in Hampstead Cemetery in North London in a, in a double tomb. He's buried on one side of it, that's his actual war grave, and on the other side is an empty tomb in memory of Veer Harmsworth, whose grave is here in Ankara. British cemetery. So whether pauper or viscount, there was no escaping the terrible losses of the Great War. But without that founding principle of the Imperial War Graves Commission, the idea of uniformity in death, if the commemoration of the dead had been left up to individual families to pay for it, there's no doubt that at the grave of Veer Harmsworth we would see a big monument 
and that we'd see lots of crumbling wooden crosses around us of the graves of ordinary soldiers from ordinary families with limited means. But what we do see here in front of Verharmsworth's grave is a big bronze memorial plaque. Now this was not placed there by Lord Rothermere or the Harmsworth family. It was placed here in 1929 by Boy Scouts from Hungary, Hungarian Boy Scouts. So how did that come about? Well, the generation of Veer Harmsworth and his brother Vivian was a generation that were part of the initial Boy Scout movement in the years following the Boer War. And families who had lost sons in the war chose to memorialise them in, in so many different ways. And Lord Rothermere was involved in really the, the reconstruction or the building up of, of a new nation, the nation of Hungary, which had emerged following the Treaty of Versailles from the ashes of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. And with the founding of a, a Boy Scout movement in Hungary in the 1920s, Lord Rothermere paid for a wristwatch, a silver wristwatch, for every Boy Scout in Hungary at that time. So when they came on an international Boy Scout jamboree in 1929, they chose to visit Lord Rothermere's son's grave here on the Somme to pay their respects and leave this memorial. At that time, as the 20s moved towards the 30s, Nations like Hungary that had come about as a consequence of the collapse of empires in the Great War and the creation of a new Europe with the Treaty of Versailles had no doubt a great degree of hope, hope for the future. But within a decade of this plaque being placed here, Europe was at war once more and Nazi Germany stamped its way across Europe and Hungary became an occupied nation. As the war progressed, many Hungarians joined the Waffen-SS, but others joined a resistance movement to fight the Nazi occupiers. And when I stand at this grave knowing what lay ahead of those young, idealistic Boy Scouts who stood here on their way to an international jamboree in a time of peace in the late 1920s, what path did the next decade take them? What, as not boys but men... What did they see and where did they go? And it yet again just demonstrates how the whole history of the 20th century is so intertwined in these places that we visit along the battlefields of the Great War. So with thoughts of that, we'll leave the cemetery, go back down the steps onto the D50. We'll turn left and then just up on the left-hand side is the beginning of a track that takes us up onto the high ground above this valley. This track takes us up onto the rising ground of the Ankara Heights above the valley here and the cemetery remains on our left in the long gully that was in the middle of no man's land between the British and the German positions here. We can see as we walk up here just how the German trenches that ran just to the right of where we are and straddled this track at different points just how they dominated this part of the battlefield because increasingly if you look back Behind you, you can see the Thietval Memorial in the distance on the Thietval Ridge. You can see the mass of Thietval Wood, which was part of the British forward positions and their front line there. So the Germans on this side of the valley could see into those. And you can see across the valley where the cemetery is now towards the village of Hamel, which was just behind the British front line in this area. And then looking north-northwest, we can see on the skyline the trees of what is now the Newfoundland Park where the attack went in towards Beaumont Hamel. So the Germans from here could observe with many of these features on the landscape, of course not there, blasted down by shell fire, or not there at the time. They had an excellent view from this position, and we enjoy similar views as we walk up here today. On the first day of the Battle of the Somme, the Ulster Division attacked through here, and although that attack was, by the end of the day, a failure, and, and none of the ground here was retained, Ulster troops had got through the German lines in the valley here and, and some got to Beaucourt Station further down the valley but they were not in any sufficient numbers to make any sort of difference to the outcome of the attack in this area on that day. On the 3rd of September 1916, that, that date that we've referenced several times in this walk, the men of the 39th Division who would go on to attack Saint-Pierre-Divion where we began made an assault across the gully where the cemetery is now towards the German trenches here. 
and that attack was led by the South Downs battalions of the Royal Sussex Regiment. I interviewed several veterans of those battalions who took part in the attack here on the 3rd of September. Albert Bamfield, who was in the signal section of the 13th Battalion, recalled how in the night before the attack they'd taken ladders out into no man's land into the gully because the banks of that gully, as they are today, were so steep that in the muddy conditions that prevailed there at that time they feared they wouldn't be able to scramble up them so they took scaling ladders to do that job but they left them out there and the Germans somehow were alerted to this and when the assault went in on the 3rd of September the bulk of the ladders were gone the Germans had removed them so men had to scramble up this muddy bank the Germans swept the top of that bank with machine gun fire and Albert Banfield recalled how he just saw men toppling back down it it was almost like some sort of medieval siege attack where ladders were placed against the walls of a castle and men scrambled up to get within. But here, of course, it was a modern battlefield with modern weapons like the Maxim machine gun that could cause merry hell to such an attack. One veteran that I interviewed here, for various reasons I won't name, he was really badly wounded in this attack. He was blown up onto the German wire in front of the positions close to where we're walking now and he hung on that wire for several days until the stretcher-bearers one night picked him up and took him in. He'd taken multiple wounds from high-explosive shells and also from shrapnel. He'd taken an absolutely dreadful wound to the face that, after his discharge from the army in 1917, required the manufacture and then implementation of a China faceplate he was so badly disfigured by the wound that China faceplates like this were used to try and help men rehabilitate into the community in which they lived to try and look normal. But of course, a, a painted China face obscuring dreadful wounds was very unlikely to help a man blend in. In fact, quite the opposite, it made him stand out. Now, when I knew this veteran, he didn't still wear his China faceplate, but he had it in a drawer in his house. And his facial wound that he'd had had not entirely healed over time, but it become a whole series of silvery scars on his face and most likely did not resemble at all anything that it looked like when he was a young man. He could remember very little of his wounding here, except the darkness and just hanging there unable to move caught on the German wire and then his next memories were in hospital when he'd been picked up and evacuated down to a base hospital on the French coast. Now he was one of those veterans I knew at the end, at the very end of his life. He died only a, a few months after I went to go and interview him and I knew that the China faceplate was there in his house and I contacted his daughter because this, for me, was an incredibly rare object connected to the history of the Great War, and I really wanted to see it preserved, given to the Imperial War Museum, for example, who I wasn't aware even had an example of one of these. So I got in contact with her and explained my thoughts on the subject, but she said, I'm, I'm sorry, you're, you're too late, and anyway, I, I wouldn't have given it to you because I lived with the stigma of a father who had been so badly wounded that he had to wear this thing, and it was awful for me. So once he was gone, I found it still in one of his drawers. I pulled it out and I smashed it with a hammer. And that was the end of it. I wanted rid of this thing. And of course, what could I say? This was the stigma she'd lived with. This was this experience as a young child having a father disfigured by the Great War. Who knows what unkind things people had said to her. So you could see her reasoning behind it. To me, at the time, it was a great tragedy to think of this object lost because it's so important in our understanding of the Great War. We stand in cemeteries like Ankara British Cemetery and we see the dead, the visible memory of the men who participated in that conflict. But they're the minority. Most men survived and they came home, often with terrible debilitating wounds like this veteran had experienced. And objects like this connect us to those often forgotten survivors of the Great War. As we come up over the rise here and, and the village of Bokor is across to our right, we could see quite clearly the village of Hamel and, and one of the big modern farms with its hangars over to the left. We're very close to where Veer Harmsworth was killed. 
He'd been wounded uh, several times in the assault on the 13th of November. And in the action between the German second line, just across to our right, and the third line positions on the outskirts of Bokor, he was one of the few officers that was left. He was rallying the men, moving them forward, and that's when he was killed. And when we did the research for the, the documentary that I mentioned about the end of the Battle of the Somme in November 1916, which was broadcast on Channel 4 in 2016, when I looked at the story of Veer Harmsworth for that again, I'm absolutely sure that he was put forward for a Victoria Cross. He was posthumously mentioned in dispatches, but perhaps there were just not enough officer witnesses because the officer casualties were so heavy. Perhaps no one had survived of any rank to be able to put their name to a recommendation for this award. Now, this is speculation, pure speculation on, on my part, but based on the research that we did for that programme and was Veer Harmsworth one of the lost VCs of the Battle of the Somme. Again, an old saying of, of one of the veterans that I knew comes to mind when I think about this. There were two types of crosses in the Great War, he used to say, the Victoria Cross and the Wooden Cross, and most got the latter. The track then takes us down into the outskirts of Beaumont Hamel village ahead of us and we come down into another gully and this is the end of what we call the Y ravine, that big Y-shaped ravine that ran from Beaumont Hamel up towards the German frontline positions, which are now part of the Newfoundland Park. This prehistoric quarry was part of the German route to the front line in this area, and we see the modern civilian cemetery at the end of it, just across on our right here, close to where the original civilian cemetery was at the time of the Great War, and there was a, a German burial site here as well. When we captured the village in November 1916, the men of the 51st Highland Division came through here and took Wyravine, Beaumont Hamel and, and the ground beyond. They found a, a German cemetery and indeed German memorial here in Beaumont Hamel. No trace of, of either of those today. The German graves were moved to another cemetery, quite possibly Free Corps. So just as with Saint-Pierre-Divion, the long German occupation of this village, there's absolutely no trace of it today, except in the archives. The track then meets the road. This is the road that runs from Beaumont Hamel to Bocour. We called it Station Road on trench maps because it goes down to the railway station in Bocour itself. The author, Henry Williamson, who I often mention in these podcasts, was here as a transport officer with the Machine Gun Corps in the winter of 1916-17, taking his donkeys and mules with their machine gun ammunition and supplies up and down Station Road to the frontline depots and dumps close to the trenches occupied by the men of his unit of the 208th Machine Gun Company as part of the 62nd West Riding Division who spent that cold winter of the war in this sector of the Somme. But we'll continue into the outskirts of the modern village of Beaumont Hamel and that'll be our next and final part of the walk. The village of Beaumont Hamel was completely destroyed by the end of the First World War. Absolutely nothing remained, just dust really, after four years of conflict and particularly the heavy bombardments here in 1916 and when the front lines returned here in the spring and then summer of 1918. So as we walk through it, all of the buildings that we see date from the 1920s or later and the population of the village was diminished following the war. About a third in most villages who'd lived here before 1914 just never came back for all sorts of reasons. During the war, the Germans occupied the village in the late summer of 1914, and then in the autumn, the men of the 119th Reserve Infantry Regiment, part of that 26th Reserve Division, the Württemberg Division, came here. And they were a unit recruited in Stuttgart, and I mentioned the idea of these German units within that Württemberg Division being sort of POWs battalions, certainly true to an extent with this one because it was recruited in and around Stuttgart. Almost all of the men in it came from that region. It had spent that long period, nearly two years in the lead up to the Battle of the Somme, and just as with Saint-Pierre-Divion, they had turned the whole village into part of their fortress, part of their defences. So while the buildings were in pretty good condition, even up to the beginning of the Battle of the Somme, 
The Germans typically went underground. They had cellars here that were connected up by tunnels. There were tunnels going up into bits of the wire ravine and then obviously the trench system that took them up towards the forward positions facing the British positions near to the villages of Hamel and Auchanville. The bell had been taken out of the church and mounted onto a wooden platform. The village sits in a bit of a hollow, so it was not in direct observation from any of the British positions here, so they could do this. And the bell was used as a massive gas alarm in, in times of a gas attack. Because Bowman Hamill sat in a hollow, I suspect there was a, a fear that the gas would sit in that hollow and linger. So the bell was struck very, very loudly to indicate that it was time to put your gas masks on and an enemy gas attack was coming in. The quarry just to the south of the village was dug into and in the 1980s and 90s the entrances to some of the German tunnel systems there were quite visible and you could peek in and see tunnels going off right under the deep escarpment there. And just on the far side of the village was the German field artillery positions that gave fire support to the 119th Reserve Infantry Regiment when they were defending the ground around the village itself. So the whole infrastructure of the German defences here were in and around the village and making it quite a considerable bastion within the German lines on this part of the Somme front. Today as we walk through the village one of the first visible reminders that we see of the war is the village war memorial with a very distinct figure of a, of a French woman sculpted onto it and, and this was some work by the sculptor Charles Gurn who was actually German. He was born in Germany in 1894 and I guess must have fought with the German army in the Great War. But he became a naturalised French citizen after the First World War and settled in Albert. He sculpted several war memorials across northern France and three of them in this area. This one here at Beaumont Hamel, one in the nearby village of Auchanvilliers, Ocean Villas, and then one in Hamel. And the face of the woman, as seen on this one, is the same face that you'll see on the other two as well. It was said to be his muse. The memorial was unveiled here in 1933 and of course you know as we mentioned with the story of the Hungarian Boy Scouts the Second World War was was perilously close at this particular point and I can find no trace of Gern beyond that so what his fate was I have no idea. Continuing down through the village we get to the church of Beaumont Hamel Again, like all of the churches in all of these villages here on the Somme, completely destroyed by the end of the war. The biggest pile of rubble, perhaps, but nothing left of it. And this one dates from 1923. However, as we stand on the road and look at the stained glass windows that face look down onto the road, we can see that they're coloured glass, except for one little piece that has got the face of Mary on it. And that tiny piece of stained glass was picked up by a German officer, Lieutenant George Muller, in 1914. He was serving here then with the 26th Reserve Division and took this little bit of stained glass window home as a souvenir, as many soldiers did on both sides of the battlefield right across the Western Front and indeed beyond. He survived the war and went home to Germany. And then in June of 1962, he turned up in the village knocked on the door of the Marie, the, the town hall, and asked to give this little bits of the original Beaumont Hamel back. Now, living in the village at that time was a chap who I got to know much later on called uh, Michel Wolferingel-Attesse. And being uh, originally from the Alsace region of France, he was a fluent German speaker, so he was able to intervene and explain what this gentleman was trying to do. And as much as you might think that a German veteran returning 50 years after the war might not be that welcome in a village that had been completely destroyed by that conflict. Actually, he was welcomed and the return of the glass was made quite something in the local press and the mayor decided that it should be reinstalled in the church in its own little section of the modern stained glass window that had replaced the original. Now, all of that is an extraordinary story in its own right, but when you stand there and you look at that tiny bit of glass, only a few inches by a few inches... That is all that remains of the original Beaumont Hamel village, a village that had lasted centuries. Generations of Frenchmen had come and gone. Lives had been lived. A community that had quite likely existed since Roman times was destroyed in a few short years of the Great War, reduced to dust. And today, the only thing that survives of all that it was, all that it represented, 
it's just this, just a tiny piece of coloured glass. And as we stand there and we look at the sun reflecting across Mary's face and realise just how lucky, I suppose, Beaumont Hamill is to have that tiny piece of the old world, it shows us just how big the scale of loss was beyond the casualties, beyond those who fell on the battlefields. And how many times have we seen this as we've walked this way along the Western Front? Those echoes of a war more than a century ago. Those echoes of the old front line. You've been listening to an episode of The Old Front Line with me, military historian Paul Reid. You can follow me on Twitter at Somcor. You can follow the podcast at Old Frontline Pod. Check out the website at oldfrontline.co.uk where you'll find lots of podcast extras and photographs and links to books that are mentioned in the podcast. And if you feel like supporting us, you can go to our Patreon page, patreon.com slash oldfrontline, or support us on Buy Me A Coffee at buymeacoffee.com slash oldfrontline. Links to all of these are on our website. Thanks for listening and we'll see you again soon.